Hey everybody, Mike here and welcome to tonight's episode of the Ohio Bigfoot Project, hosted by the Ohio Bigfoot Research and Investigation Center. And let's just jump right into it. You know, when it comes to looking for Bigfoot, my favorite time is fall going into winter, and then winter going into spring. I'll still do it during the summer, but I don't necessarily enjoy it as much as the summer. And I'll explain why. First of all, for summer, that's the best or easiest time for us as humans to go out into the woods because the weather's nice for camping, you're not freezing your butt off, things like that. But it's actually the worst time for Bigfoot, even though there is sightings and activity over the summer. But we're going to jump into that. Okay, starting with the fall of the year, which I guess to go the long way around and come back is to first explain the Bergman rule. Um, years ago, scientists by the guy named Bergman came up with the ruling for um, species across the globe, pretty much. And uh, what this rule is, is that animals in the south are always smaller than animals in the most northern, coldest regions. And this has been proven time and time again. Um, one way to explain it is a white-tailed deer in Georgia, North Carolina, will weigh about 150 to 180 pounds. Now, once you get up here to where I'm from in Ohio, your white-tailed deer can run... 150, 182, 220, 240, and uh, kind of, you know, round in there. But then you go up north into Canada, and the average white-tailed deer weight is 250 pounds, and there's been many, many, many 300-pound-plus animals killed. So this has to do with size, heat retention, and heat deflection. Okay, if you look at an African ant, uh, elephant, they live in an extremely hot region, and they have enormous ears, and they're always fanning their ears. The reason why is that when the blood flows through their ears, they can fan their ears, cool the blood as it pumps back into their bodies, and thus it's a way of thermostating their own eternal internal temperature, okay? So they can literally control the temperature of their body through the fanning of their ears by cooling their blood. Okay, if you look back in history at the woolly mammoth, the woolly mammoth had extremely small ears, but it lived in a very cold region pretty much during the Ice Age. It didn't need to deflect heat. It needed to retain heat. Therefore, the smaller ears kept that blood flow tight to the body, which kept it warmer. It didn't get fanned and cooled. Instead, it stayed tight and warm. And that's why they were also covered in hair. Was It was a thermatic control. Okay, a smaller deer, like a Georgia deer or a North Carolina deer compared to an Ohio deer or a Saskatchewan deer or an Ontario deer, 
actually has more body surface per mass in order to deflect heat because they live in a warmer region. Okay, the, the height is pretty much the same. The body shape is the same. It's just simply solid mass that changes. Because I've heard people argue this with me about Bigfoot, about how, oh, I've seen a Bigfoot in, you know, Louisiana that was eight feet tall, and the ones you have in Ohio are eight feet tall, and there's no difference between the two, and yet yeah, there is. It actually has nothing to do with height of the animal. It has to do with weight and mass of the animal. The more north you go, the more body mass they have to retain heat. Now, how that plays out in Ohio, however, is it can backfire on you in the summertime. Because in the summertime, those bigger massed animals, they won't move as much during hot weather. Okay, they won't move around a whole lot during the heat of the day. They'll move in the late of the evening, the early of the morning, and overnight when temperatures are cooler and they're not in the full sun, thus it keeps them from overheating. As I said, I come to big footing with a bow hunting background. So a good way to explain this is that if I'm deer hunting, if I was going to do it in the summer, you would not catch me out from 10 in the morning until about 7 o'clock in the evening. There's no point because a big buck will go bed down. He'll just lay down, sleep all day in a nice shady high grass area and not move. But in the late in the evening when the temperature starts to drop a little, even though it's still warm, it's not as hot as the full sun, so that's when they'll get up to go move get water, they'll go nocturnal, they'll run all night, they'll feed, and then they'll feed, you know, in the morning, they'll nap a couple times during the night, but then during the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, they're bedded down. Except for when fall hits and the temperatures drop. When the temperatures make that drastic drop, they can now move during the heat of the day because it's actually cooler during the heat of a fall day than the coolest evening of the summer, you see. So even though it's full sun, the temperature is 20, 30 degrees cooler. It's not 80 degrees, it's 60 degrees or in the 50s. And so that animal's much cooler and can move around a lot more with comfort and not have to worry about overheating its body. Okay, so this is where the Bergman's rule applies because with Bigfoot, it's pretty much, I feel, the same way. That during the heat of the day, they don't want to move during the hot summer, but in the fall and over winter, they can move about much more freely and use less energy. Okay, so uh, they can move more and burn less, basically, is what it comes around to. So, when it's the fall of the year is when I enjoy bigfooting the most going into winter, for two reasons. One, the temperatures are cooler, so the animal can move about more. Secondly, going into winter, 
the food sources start to dissipate. So during vegetation-wise, not meat animal-wise, just vegetation-wise. But with this vegetation going away, as you all know, animals will put on fat for the winter. So during the fall, before that winter hits, when the temperatures drop enough that they can move about comfortably, a feeding frenzy happens in wildlife in the fall of the year. Squirrels start storing nuts for winter. Deer start feeding heavily. They start getting fat. Um, raccoons will, will start to come out because, let's face it, for a raccoon, they're covered in hair and they really don't have a way to shed heat, so they move at night, but you'll actually start seeing daytime raccoons during the fall. It's not uncommon to happen. So everything can move more comfortably, and it can put time and effort into storing up that fat and doing a, a feeding frenzy in order to build themselves up for what they're going to lose over winter in the harder months. Okay, so that's why I enjoy Bigfooting the most in the fall. is because I feel that's when the animals are going to start moving the absolute most. Now over winter, food sources, as I say, become more sparse. So animals might have to travel more or more often or more distant in order to retain that their body mass and what they need to survive however because the temperatures are cooler they can travel greater distances they can travel for longer spans of time and burn less energy to find and forage for the food okay so I hope that makes sense to you. I know from me in a hunting standpoint, it, it does, and it actually goes without saying. It's just something that everybody knows in the hunting world. Um, but I understand that a lot of you guys could actually be non-hunters, and that's okay, you know. I don't knock you because you don't hunt. I have no problem with it. I, I'm, I'm actually friendly to vegans, you know, just because I hunt doesn't mean I'm some jerk who just likes to kill animals just to watch them die. Um, it's actually quite opposite of that, and I have a great love for wildlife, which a lot of people don't understand when I say that, but um, I'm not even going to begin to try to explain that right now. Okay, but knowing this, knowing about the fall... In the winter, and the feeding habits of wildlife, to me, Bigfoot is a primitive primate. It's an ape. It's wildlife. So therefore, to me, I categorize it and its movements, its habits, its characteristics, as I would a deer, a raccoon, a squirrel, a wild turkey, you name it. It's in that same classification. Now... This you can use to your advantage as long as you understand food sources. Okay, in late winter when there's snow on the ground, but there's still standing cornfields, a lot of your deer and your raccoons and your squirrels and pretty much every animal is going to head for those food sources. 
wild turkeys are going to walk hillsides. They're going to scratch for acorns that weren't picked up during the fall. They're going to, a uh, deer will paw down through the snow to get to a patch of grass. In late, late winter, deer will actually pot up and live in big groups together of 20 or 30 animals because one deer pawing through the snow can make a small patch of grass, but like a rototiller. But 20 or 30 deer can paw through the snow like a bulldozer and make a big patch of grass. Okay, they can dig down as a group collectively. So when you're driving around in the winter and you look out in the field and you see 10, 15, 20 deer standing together, that's what's happening, is they're all working together. Um, it's just something that is built in them to do. It's just a natural occurrence that happens. It's called potting, and the deer will pod up. So if you understand how wildlife moves and how it follows these food sources and where it finds its food sources, and believing that Bigfoot as a primate utilizes this other wildlife as a, as a food source, then it too is going to follow these other animals because it's going to follow the food. It's going to follow its next meal. Just like a bear knows to go to a stream when they're going to be making their run, you know, and they're moving upstream to spawn, you always see those creeks are lined with bears, okay? They know how to find that meal. They know the uh, salmon are going to be coming through. And they'll come out of the high ground down to the lowlands to those streams to get those salmon. Okay, same basic theory with Bigfoot. Is that in the harshest, nastiest time of winter, when food is the scarcest, is when you have to follow the food sources the most. Now in the heat of summer, that animal doesn't have to move far to get food. It might not have to move 300 400, 500, 1,000 yards. It might only have to move 5 feet. And if it only has to move 5 feet, that means it has to move very little, so the chances of seeing that animal greatly diminish. Now one thing that kind of combats this in a bad way is that during the fall and winter, it's hunting season. That's when hunters are in the woods. Now hunters are associated with carrying big noisy sticks that make a loud bang and kill animals. Okay, so animals have a tendency to... A deer will do what they call blowing out the woods, which I talked about before, um, with these hunters because they, they smell the danger. They know the danger. And that's why when I do go bigfooting, you will not catch me carrying a gun ever because I don't want to carry something that smells like gun oil or burnt sulfur or has that same smell associated with a hunter because a hunter is seen as a threat and let's face it you're trying to move in on an animal to videotape it you know to, to take a video of it to get a photograph of it you want that animal to stick around or be as curious for as long as possible. So if you go in the woods looking like a hunter, smelling like a hunter, 
that animal's not going to stick around. It's going to move on and get out of there very quickly. And that's just the opposite of what you want to happen. So I never, ever go bigfooting with a hunting implement. Because that hunting implement smells just like a hunting implement that animals know, make noises, and kill other animals. I mean, they're not stupid. You know, they understand the Orange Army. And for those of you who don't, that's, uh, in Ohio, we have one week of gun deer season. Well, in order for safety reasons, you have to wear hunter orange. So when you look out through the woods, you see all these little orange polka dots everywhere. And us bow hunters jokingly call that the Orange Army because it looks like an army of people wearing orange going through the woods. And all it does is displace animals quite a bit. Bow hunters love to go bow hunting right before deer season because those deer hunters will go out, start putting up their tree stands, things like that, and they'll run deer to you all day long. So as a bow hunter, I love bow hunting the week before gun deer season. And I've shot many a deer during that week because a gun deer hunter has ran that deer right to me unknowingly. Now, during gun deer season, obviously it's a bad time for a bigfooter to be in the woods because you stand a pretty good chance of getting shot accidentally. However, there are state parks that have non-hunting areas. And let me tell you, during gun deer week, those non-hunting areas, like around Salt Fork Lodge, golf parks, golf courses, things like that, can be absolute gold mines for evidence. And I, because there, there's a place where my mom lives, it's called Apple Valley. It's in Howard, Ohio, and it's a retirement community. Okay, well, right before gun deer season, this small community around a retirement community built around a lake, deer pile into that place because they know they're safe. They know they're, the Orange Army's not coming in there to get them. It's not going to be intruded by humans, and the deer will run into this place knowing darn well that it's safe. And my mom has these insanely huge bucks that I would love to hunt if I could get them on my turf with just enormous bodies, big racks, big does. And I'm a primarily more of a doe hunter than I actually am a buck hunter because I hunt for meat, not for antlers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the deer that my mom has in her backyard around deer season just blows my mind. And she'll have, a, you know, 5, 10, 15 of them just literally bed down in her backyard, and it's absolutely amazing. And then right after deer season, they're gone. They just go back to the woods because the people are gone. It's such a weird concept, but it's something that over years and years and years and years, we've actually trained these wildlife animals to do we've trained deer to do it we've trained wild turkeys to do it it's called driving you drive the animals to other areas so as a bow hunter perspective i'm going to go in those very very back areas because your average hunter will not move more than a quarter mile from his truck reason why if you're 
I don't know, let's say three quarters of a mile from where you're parked and you shoot a deer and you're by yourself and you now have a 200 pound animal on the ground, that's a long drag to get back to your vehicle. Okay, that's a lot of work. You either cut the animal up in the field and pack it out in quarters or you go get three or four buddies to help you drag it across or you bust your butt spending three hours to move this animal through the woods a few yards at a time and absolutely wear yourself out. So your average hunter will stay relatively close to their vehicle. So if you're willing to go back beyond where most people stop, that's where you're going to find the big, smart, intelligent animals at. Okay, well, these non-hunting areas, areas where hunting is not allowed within state parks, they all have uh, non-hunting areas. As a bigfooter, those, now I would still wear hunter orange just to be safety during gun week, just because you never know of a poacher or something like that. But those areas can be just absolutely awesome with um, movement and evidence and you'll actually increase your chances of a sighting so there's one little tip for you now coming out of winter and into spring february march is mating season for raccoons um usually october, september october november is mating season for white-tailed deer it's called the rut <clears throat> And they'll carry this animal over winter so that doe will feed and feed and feed and feed and feed and feed even more. And then they'll birth in the spring around April or May. Now when this birthing starts, these deer will often, and turkeys too, turkeys are May, usually April and May, some maybe early June. Okay, well these animals have to fight to find very secluded safe areas because in Ohio we have coyotes. To uh, any hunter, a coyote is known as a fawn killer because they'll kill a spotted fawn, a baby deer basically, and consume it. And they'll raccoons, minks, even squirrels, you name it, will attack a turkey nest and eat the eggs. So in this birthing and egg laying and hatching and all that season begins is when most of your predators are the most active because there's easy meals to be found on the landscape and coming out of winter they're going to lose some body weight they're going to lose some energy they're going to lose um, some of their mass and they're going to want to build themselves back up they, they're, they're protein starved they need food period and so they'll start, you know, going after uh, lambs and calves and fawns and things like that. These coyotes will, and I believe Bigfoot would too. I, I see no reason why it wouldn't. Why chase down a full-blown deer that can run at incredible speeds when you can just grab a fawn? So, you know, same basic concept. Bigfoot is, after all, a predator animal predatory it eats meat and vegetation so yeah it, it just happens I mean, 
I think last podcast, maybe the one before that, I talked about the the doe. I watched eat a nest of baby birds. You know, animals get protein starved during this time of year. And that's when they're out the most because there's a great, I guess, variety or amount of protein being birthed on the landscape. And then, of course, we go back in the summer and the heat and then wildlife slows down for the next three months. I mean, they're still active. They just, most of them, primarily go nocturnal. So they're still out there. Um, They just like to move when it's cooler, and it's cooler when it's dark. So they're, they're not in the full sun. So I guess that brings the full year of animal movement in perspective as to why I prefer the fall, the winter, and early spring compared to summer when it comes to looking for Bigfoot. I just refuse to hunt while I'm Bigfooting because I don't want to appear as a hunter and scare away something that I'm literally trying to have in front of me for as long as possible to get a picture or a video of. Now, a lot a little bit more into the Bergman theory with or the Bergman rule with Bigfoot and I said the guy who had an argument with me that deer in Louisiana are eight foot tall just like the ones in Ohio, this is true. This is true. But if you go up north you'll find reports of nine foot Bigfoot and ten foot Bigfoot. Actually, the biggest I've ever heard of came out of Alaska, where the guy swears it was 12 feet tall. It could have been. It could have been a 12-foot tall one. Absolutely. But, most likely, it was nine and a half, ten, eight and a half. Um, There's the Bigfoot he saw and the Bigfoot he thought he saw. Years ago, there was a a gospel group. The guy's name was Wendy Bagwell. And we're talking 50s, 60s, 70s, okay? He went around uh, to all these different churches, and, you know, they sang gospel songs, and he was a bit of a, a, a gospel comedian, so to speak. Well, it just so happened that his group booked a trip to a church to perform for them, and it happened to be one of those little southern churches where they pass around the serpent. They break out the rattlesnakes, because of some belief in the Bible, I don't even know to really get into it, but um, basically handle the serpent or the devil, and you know, if you're uh, committed in your um, your faith, and it won't hurt you, kind of deal. And there's this little church that does this somewhere. I've never been to one, nor will I ever, because I ain't gonna have anybody hand me a live rattlesnake. I don't care if the Lord's on my side or not. If you hand me a live rattlesnake, there's probably a pretty good chance I'm going to meet him a lot sooner than I care to. <clears throat> but anyways, this guy, he he was talking about him and his um, these girls that he traveled with, and they went in this church, and they brought out the snakes, and the girls turned ghost white and started, uh, you know, like collecting very close to him, you know, like just kind of hugging or squeezing into him, you know, out of general nervousness. And he said that a guy walked by him with a 27-foot-long rattlesnake. And after one of his shows, this little old lady caught him in the lobby and said, Sir, Mr. Bagwell, you are an unlitigated liar. There's no such thing as a 27-foot-long rattlesnake. 
And of course, him being a, a comedian, even though, you know, a gospel comedian, he said, ma'am, I assure you that was a 27 foot long rattlesnake because it was two snakes at once. And this little lady asked him, well, just what does that mean? And he said, simple. There's the snake I saw and the snake I thought I saw. You know, if, <laughs> if you have someone that's afraid of snakes and you walk by them with a large rattlesnake, I guarantee you that thing in your mind is 27 feet long. So with this guy saying what he says is a 12-foot Bigfoot, yeah, it could have been. Absolutely. I, 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 it wouldn't shock or surprise me if it was. But it was probably closer to 10 and 10 eight and a half nine nine and a half because there's the bigfoot that he saw in that moment of fear and then the bigfoot that he thought he saw in that moment of fear which just grew another three foot in his mind because you know he didn't stop and walk over to it and hold a tape measure up beside it or anything like that so um, you know that's how but generally speaking yes the more north you go the bigger animals get it's just the way it is it's science only they get bigger in mass, not so much height. But the more free area you have to move, the better the food source, things like that. Um, the less human interruption. I mean, Africa is one of the hottest continents in the world, and yet it has some of the biggest animals in the world. It has giraffes. It has elephants. We don't have giraffes in North America. I believe we did at one time had a type of uh, giraffe. We had bison. We had um, we actually had a, a type of camel at one point in time in history. But uh, you know most of that stuff was hunted out. We had mastodons. We had mammoths. So yeah, we did have big animals on the landscape. We just ate all of ours, except for the bison, which we miraculously gave a comeback to along with the elk. In fact, at one time, there was almost no wildlife in America. There was no wild turkeys in Ohio. There was no deer in Ohio at one point. We had bear. We had uh, bobcat. We had cougar. We had elk. Um, we just hunted everything out. But through uh, trading programs with other states, we was able to bring turkeys back and bring deer back and the story of conservation which was an absolute miracle and it was all paid for by the dollars from hunting and fishing through something called the Pittman Robertson Act which is uh, a whole nother can of worms to get into but I'll, I'll explain it someday perhaps basically the Pittman Robertson Act in short form is every time you buy a anything in the sporting goods department ammunition a bow arrows a hunting pack um, they're moving it now more towards uh, sleeping bags camping gear binoculars laser range finders you name it anything a, a hunter would normally buy there's a tax and that tax is automatically already paid by the manufacturer and then we repay them and all that money goes to the Department of the Interior and it gets dispersed throughout the states depending on how many hunting and fishing licenses they sell because it's those licenses primarily the hunting license the fishing is actually the Dangle Johnson tax um, but the Pittman Robertson yeah it, that's what funds all these wildlife 
programs as hunters. It's not non-hunters. It's hunters that financially support and maintain wildlife and wildlife biologists and uh, your Department of Natural Resources, Department of Forestry, Department of, you know, things like that. That's what funds all that. Is the it's a billion-dollar industry, the hunting industry. And that's what pays for all these programs to help keep wildlife on the landscape. If you want more information on that, just look up my other podcast, The Inexpensive Sportsman, and you'll get more information into the world of hunting and fishing through that. Um, I believe the episode is called Taxes, Taxes, Taxes. So if you go to the Inexpensive Sportsman and find the episode Taxes, Taxes, Taxes and listen to that, it explains everything in a nutshell. Or listen to the episode where th that we did an episode with uh, a member of the ODNR, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, and he really lays it out and explains it. So I believe that was on... I know it was recorded on May the 8th because it was my birthday. So, <clears throat> anyway, that's a, those two episodes are two that will explain everything Pittman-Robertson if you're interested in it. Now to get into a couple of the more fun topics. If there's one thing I have noticed that every Bigfooter I've ever met has in common with their hunting pack is that they all carry, for whatever reason, a bowie knife. They carry this big old brush cutter. Now I carry one as well. I do. But mine I use for uh, chopping femurs on deer when I'm uh, gutting or splitting or quartering or you know trying to pack out of the woods. But a lot of big butters I know have these bowie knives. And if you look at them it can be 10 years old and still have the factory edge. It's like they're afraid to use their knives and get them dirty or do anything with them I don't I don't get it I don't understand it but I find it from a bow hunting uh standpoint I, I find it comical I do I get a kick out of it that everyone has this big bowie knife and but they never use it so um yeah that, that, that that's that's something that I just lightheartedly I find entertaining um you know and I, I carry one too um I've used mine to stab coyotes i've <laughs> um i had a really bad hunting accident well what could have been a bad hunting accident one time and uh it was that bowie knife at uh i broke the blade but coyote didn't get me so um yeah and i've used mine for chopping firewood and i've used mine for um uh dismantling deer in the field um and just all kinds of things, but I just find it comical that almost every single Bigfooter carries a, a Bowie knife, but it's got a factory, like, it can be 10 years old and still looks brand new. I just, I, I don't understand it. It's just something, I, something that tickles me. Now, if there is one thing from the hunting world that I absolutely do transpire to the Bigfoot world is my laser rangefinder. What this is, is I look through it, I push a button, and it tells me how many yards something away is. Particularly a deer, because when I'm using my bow, I have a 20, a 30, a 40, and a 45-yard pin. So that's the distance of my compound. Now, 
my crossbow was set at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards. So when I see a deer, I can put my laser rangefinder on it and it'll beat back instantly that it's 43 yards away. Therefore, I know exactly where to hold my bow in order to make that shot. I know to hold it to where I believe 43 yards would be. But that's one thing that I absolutely love for the Bigfoot world, especially uh, if you're investigating sightings when someone says, well, it happened right over here. Well, click. Okay, that's exactly, you know, mine goes out to a thousand yards. So I can look at an object, well, move by that tree and I was standing here. Click, okay, well, that's 237 yards. Well, it looks so and so tall. So now I know the exact distance to how he thought it looked so and so tall to get a general baseline of how I think how tall it would be. So if there's one thing I would recommend throwing in your hunting pack is get a laser range finder. They're less than $100 and they're one of the best tools you'll ever have for bigfooting. I carry mine religiously. Another one that I find comical, and I used to do this, is you'd go on a long pack, a long hike. And of course you have your hiking pack. Well, I've seen guys try to tote around like a 100 pound pack. Why? Are you looking to have back issues? No, no, I carry bare minimum, as little as possible. Now that's not always easy to do with some of the things you need in the Bigfoot world. One of them is plaster cast. I used to carry pounds of plaster with me. I don't anymore. I found a better solution for me. A much more lightweight that has the same general effectiveness. It doesn't necessarily pick up dermal ridges the same way that plaster will. But that's fine. I still get the basic shape and that's all you really care about for me. Is um is that it it still makes a very, very, very nice cast. And it's a ton lighter than carrying around plaster. Um but yeah, I used to be one of those guys that carries around carried around a bunch of plaster casts or cat not plaster cast but plaster for making casts if i'm going on a super long hike i won't put five pounds of plaster in my pack instead i'll put a couple cans of expand foam with some cut pieces of cardboard and if i find a footprint that i want to make a cast of i'll just shoot it full of expand foam and then I'll use the cardboard to press into the print and to spread around the expand of foam. And then that's how I make my casts. Most of mine are made out of expand of foam. They're not made out of plaster. And they're a whole heck of a lot lighter to carry. So if you want to share that tip with others, that's fine. Just remember you heard it right here at the OhioBigfootProject.com. Um... But yeah, that, 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 don't, don't carry around five pounds of plaster. You're going to wear yourself out super quick. You know, a, a basic pocket knife is more than enough. If you really want to chop something, you don't want a bowie knife. Carry a, a carbon-handled hatchet. They're a whole lot easier to cut with than a knife. You'll cut through wood a lot quicker. But I actually carry a super lightweight handsaw, which you can find in your most 
camping departments. It's just a small toothed blade about 10 to 12 inches long with a long plastic handle that goes into a plastic sheath and rip, 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 a couple rips and you're through any log you want. So they're super handy to carry and they're a whole lot lighter. And I, but I just, yeah, that's one of the things that I like to do. Well, folks, I'm going to wrap this episode up. Uh, the wife is about ready to get home from work, which means the dogs are going to be barking soon. Um, I did have a fantastic weekend in the woods. I did get out this weekend, and I had a lot of fun. I went completely by myself. Um, a lot of people get nervous about that. Why do you go by uh, bigfooting by yourself? Well, I coon hunt by myself a lot of times. Not always. I squirrel hunt by myself. Not always. And I deer hunt by myself with bow. Pretty much always. Um, but not always. But bigfooting, you know. I've never... I've been hunting for 30 years. 30 plus years. And I'm still here. Nothing bad has ever happened to me. So the only thing that's different is the mindset because you're looking for a lot different animal but you're looking in the same places that other wildlife lives so you know it's just more of a mental nervousness to go bigfooting by yourself but i do it because you know i didn't have anyone else to go with me at the time so but yeah i had a fantastic weekend in the woods um nothing to write home about but still interesting Still interesting. Every trip out, you always learn a little something. and You know, so yeah, it was a good time. But I'm going to wrap this episode up. Um, I also got to get ready for work tomorrow and all that fun stuff. But I'll put out another podcast here pretty soon. And uh, hopefully I won't be so tired. This one, to me, feels like I did more rambling than anything. But I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty daggum tired, so... I will catch you all next episode, and have a great weekend, or a great week, well, a great week, and this coming weekend, have a great weekend. Get out there in the woods, y'all. I mean, you're not going to see Bigfoot sitting on your couch, although that's not entirely true, because some people have. Um, but yeah, <laughs> get out there and enjoy the woods.